Hello, this is Tim Conboy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. Good morning. How many ate too much at Thanksgiving? Anyone? 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 Hey, Keith. Remember the warning, the Thanksgiving warning in Scripture. You remember that verse, don't you? It says, if any man find himself to be a glutton, let him put a knife to his throat. So always use plasticware at Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, actually, we didn't do too bad this year as far as overeating. We had Thanksgiving with our friend Bob Evans. And uh, it's like... No dishes, no no anything, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just Jerry and I, we, you know, we've had company for three weeks, and we said, you know, we don't want to go anywhere, we don't want to do anything, just lounge around in our pajamas, so we went to Bob Evans in our pajamas, no, not, actually went up on uh, some nursing home visitation, went up to see uh, Carol Green, she gives her love and regards. She had hip surgery, and she's uh, recovering right now. So keep praying for her. Uh, but we had a great time visiting with Carol and uh, Vicki uh, this past Thursday morning. Then we kind of made our rounds back, stopped, saw Bob, and then came home. And so, uh, so it was good. Good Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe it's going to be Christmas. I don't, I don't know, nor do I care how many shopping days are left. Right? Who cares? Be a guy. Be a guy for once. Let it come and go. Just let it come and go. And they say, what did you get me for Christmas? What do you mean, what did I get you? No. Actually, I'm, I'm going to be in uh, Acts 22. Go anywhere you want, but I'll be in Acts 22. Actually, I've learned. Well, I don't know if I've learned. What did I say? How many go with? How many adults here go with the uh, rules? All right, we're not going to get each other anything for Christmas. Anyone go by those rules? Oh, quite a bit of us. Good. I wish I could trust that rule, though. <laughs> I never seem to trust it. Like, okay, we're not supposed to get anything. I better get something just in case. And so, lo and behold, I got something. And you know, a couple of years running now. And she goes, why do you keep getting something? I go, I don't want to be wrong on this one. You know? <laughs> she goes, well, I didn't get you anything but this card. I was like, I, you know, so, and you know, when you got grandkids, it's like, take care of the grandkids and stuff. But so anyway, so yeah, this year, um, my wife said, okay, I was going to get you something, even though we're not supposed to get anything. So it took three years to break her down. So now she's finally getting, no. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it's a tough rule to live by as far as... Uh, you know, you, you're just taking a chance. That's all I can say. Just take a chance. You know, we guys, we worry about these things. Should I or shouldn't I? I had a dear friend of mine ran out thanks, or not Thanksgiving, a Christmas Eve one night. Nothing was open except Walgreens. And he bought his wife a radio. <laughs> you're probably better off going with the nothing route on that one, you know. Than, uh, anyways. Oh, yeah, I wanted to uh, touch base real quick. Remember... There's be sure to pay attention to services coming up. Remember the 10th. There's one service Sunday on the 10th. 
And so one Sunday service that we're calling Service Sunday. We're going to gather here, have a little time of worship, and then we're going to break out. We're going to be going down to nursing home. We're going to be bringing food over to families that you have contributed so graciously to. And uh, and we have some other things lined up. So it's one service, 10 o'clock. We call it, instead of Sunday service, it's Service Sunday. So we're going to come here and then go out and serve our community. And then uh, just let God use us this Christmas season. So we can do this, right? I know, you think, is that legal? It is. We can handle it. All right. We're going to pick it up in Acts 22. We're going to just actually hit the one verse. And for those who may not have been with us, you know, up to the previous verses. In the previous chapter, Paul has been, uh, finished his third missionary journey, gets back to Jerusalem. He meets the, the... church there in Jerusalem, James says, hey, Paul, you know, there's a lot of rumors that are going around about you. They're saying that you are teaching contrary to the law. And so here's our plan. We have these guys that are taking a vow, and we want you to go with them, go down to the temple. You're all going to shave your heads because it's part of the vow. And when everyone sees that, they're all going to say, oh, I so misunderstood Paul. He really was for the law. He really was for Moses. He wasn't preaching contrary to it. And all these rumors will be dispelled. Is it always, is it ever prudent to base your actions on rumors? Never. They always backfire. So they're trying to dispel these rumors. So they came up, instead of just addressing or ignoring them, which is usually the best thing to do in a room, or just ignore it. But if you cannot ignore it, then you must address it in the setting it's in. If it's a private setting, deal with it privately, not on Facebook. If it's a public setting, you deal with it publicly within the context of the setting. You follow me on this? God bless you. You with me on this? You don't just put it out there and hope that they're going to come to the conclusion you want them to. Because that didn't happen. Paul goes in there with these four other guys. He shaves his head. Someone from Ephesus is down in town for the Pentecost. And they look and say, hey, Paul brought Greeks into the temple. And they, did Paul bring Greeks into the temple? Hence another rumor. You try to fix rumor, you make another rumor. So then there's this other rumor. And they say, wow, this is what happens. And then they act based on their assumption. Always oh, wrong. Drag Paul out of the temple. They didn't worry about the other four guys. But Paul, they just started pummeling and beating. So the commander over the centurions told the centurion, Hey, get your boys and go down there and rescue Paul. So he goes down there and they pull Paul out of the crowd. They're dragging him up the steps. He's all beaten. He speaks in Greek to the centurion and says, Hey, can I talk to the crowd for a minute? And he goes, Wow, you speak Greek? I thought you were the Egyptian. That led 4,000 out in the wilderness. 4,000 assassins. Remember that? Man, that's quite a charge. I thought you were the guy that had the 4,000 assassins. The Egyptian guy. No. You don't even sound, you don't even walk like an Egyptian, right? <laughs> you are speaking Greek to me. So sure, you can address the crowd. So he gets up there and he dresses the crowd. And he speaks to them in Hebrew. Soldier speaks Greek, not Hebrew. They listen to him until he said the audacious words that God said that you Jews in Jerusalem will not listen to the gospel message, so God sent me to the Gentiles. You remember that? Wow, that's enough to really snap an axle, isn't it? I mean, they just went off. They're like, what? 
What do you mean we won't listen to you? Just for that, we're not going to listen to you. Isn't it kind of funny how he's, they fulfilled the very words that Jesus said we're, they're going to do? So they would not listen, and they're getting ready to attack Paul, and the commander says, wow, get him inside the barracks. They get him in. They are about to beat him, and he pulls out his Roman citizenship card. He says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot beat me. And they go, oh, wow, you're right. And you were born a Roman citizen. So they backed off. But they still have an issue. And they have to say, okay, why was this guy even brought to us? Why was everybody so upset? Why was the crowd going wild over whatever he said in Hebrew, which we didn't understand? And so now they pick it up. You get all that? Are you with me? We just covered like two and a half chapters. Like that. Now we'll cover ten verses like that. (laughs) <laughs> All right, follow with me. Verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he, being the commander, released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council, the mean the 70 of the Sanhedrin, to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So you got the picture. Here's the commander. Here's the centurions and the soldiers. Here's the council. You got your high priest. You got your, your uh, Sanhedrin there, your Sanhedrin, you know, potatoes, potatoes, whatever you call them. They're all there. And in comes a soldier, and they bring Paul right down in the midst of the council. And they say, okay, what's the problem? Then Paul, verse 1, looked earnestly at the council. You know, I like that. You know why I like that? There's got to be a reason why God tells us about his posture. And he stops, he says, you know how Paul was when that council was in front of him? He looked earnestly, looked them straight in the face with all earnesty. Now, that tells me that Paul doesn't see himself as the victim here. So many Christians see themselves as the victim of the world, the victim of circumstance, the victim of whomever. Paul's not the victim. He's the victor. He puts his shoulders back and his head high and looks him right in the eye. Looks right at the accusers. They're falsely accusing him. They have false charges. They've already beaten him. The soldiers are about to beat him. He's already bruised and standing before them. And yet he unabashedly just looks at them and looks earnestly. And how many times are we ashamed to talk about the Lord or ashamed of, of the gospel or ashamed of grace or whatever? You know, we feel like we're outnumbered and we just kind of like, you know, a little mealy mouth about it. Man, we are on the winning side, people. Are we not? We are victors in Christ. Amen? We've got to stop being victims and be the victors who we are. We are more than a conqueror. I love that. It means mega conqueror. You're a mega conqueror today. Don't you feel like it? You say, oh yeah, mega conqueror. I tell you, if you've ever done any street witnessing, sometimes those guys can get a little feisty out there. And they like to be in numbers. And when you start witnessing to them, let me tell you, if you back down, they're going to be all over you. And they're going to they're gonna be coming at you and everything, and then you're going to get you flustered, and you're going to just kind of mealy mouth off. But, you know, when you just stand tall and speak the truth and know it and believe it in your heart, here's what's going to happen. All of a sudden, a crowd of people just starts going away. They don't want to hear it, and off they go. And it's going to dwindle down to the ones the Holy Spirit's working on. 
And then you can just talk to them and say, by the way, glad you're here. It's amazing. I've had groups of uh, teenagers, young adults, gangs and up in New York where I lived. And I, I did a lot of street witnessing there. And, and there, you know, you start talking and they're all cool around each other until you just, just start laying out and they start going away. Or someone starts having a question, the other's looking and like, what? don't talk to this guy. And what I find interesting, the ones that are interested that after the crowd dissipates, somewhere along the line in Sunday school, or VBS, church, or grandma, wherever it is, somewhere they've heard the gospel. Somewhere someone's praying for them. Somewhere someone's talking. Somewhere they've memorized John 3.16. It always amazed me how the Lord knows just who He's dealing with and he just, and the rest will just go by the wayside. If you stand strong with the gospel. I don't be, mean being obnoxious. But I mean just lovingly put it out there and be the victor that you are. That's who you are, right? Okay, there's Glenn and somebody else I said it. Yeah. We are the victors, right? Yeah, baby. Oh, now you're talking. Well, you're going to get me preaching here in a minute. All right. Oh, yeah, we didn't even get past the first comma. <laughs> then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, by the way, remember, at least I was always taught, whenever you see the word brethren, it means Christians. No, it doesn't. Oftentimes here as well as Romans 9, Romans 10, when, and I'd say Romans 12, 1 even. When it says brethren, he's talking about his brethren, his kinsmen after the flesh here. They're not believers, but they're his relatives, if you will. They're same ethnicity. So he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. It's quite a statement. And the high priest, Ananias commanded those, plural, who stood by him, either side, to strike him on the mouth. All right. I need a volunteer. <laughs> Come here, Aaron. No. No, I need someone small. <laughs> not, not small, but smaller than me. Ananias. He was a high priest from A.D. 47 to A.D. 59. He was a high priest. You say, those dates sound familiar. They should. Because that was the time that Paul was on his missionary journeys. He was a missionary to Asia Minor. He was a missionary to the first one into Europe there. Remember when he went across to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and back. He just finished his third missionary journey now that he goes to Jerusalem. During that time frame, they got a new high priest. His name's Ananias. And Ananias was the one that told these guys next to him, slap them, the closest guys. And they hauled off and whacked them one. Boy, that must have smarted. We forget the pain that somebody must be in. We just think, oh, they slapped and we just read the next verse. Man, his mouth must have been throbbing. And in Christian love, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you white-walled, or whitewashed wall. Ooh, Paul, the language... God will strike, God will, boom, put the smack, that's quite a statement. When you're going to say, God's going to put the smack down on you, you whitewashed wall. I mean, that's hard to say, God bless you. Wow. For you sit in judgment of me according to the law, and do you command, or command me to be struck contrary to the law? So you're judging me by the law, and you're breaking the law at the same time. Called hypocrisy, right? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? 
Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Why didn't he know? He's been on a missionary journey all these years. He's just now coming into Jerusalem for Pentecost. I didn't know he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Here's the lesson there. The lesson is, you respect the office, even if you do not respect the person. You follow me on that? Even if you don't respect that person, even if you have no respect for Ananias, breaking the law while he's judging you according to the law, even if you don't respect that guy, you still have to respect the office. Amen? I know, let me tell you, there's people that hold office, that people don't like the ones holding office. But the fact of the matter is, you still have to respect the office. There's been administrations in the past, just the last past, in the past, whom I did not respect at all as a person. But he's still my president. He was still my president back then. And I still respect the office, even if you don't respect the person. Capiche? So he says, hey, you may not think Ananias is your high priest, but he's still the high priest. He said, don't badmouth him, don't diss him, don't speak evil and revile him. And Paul quoted that verse, because, yeah, you know what? You know what he's saying to this guy? They just said, what, you revile God's high priest? He says, you know what? You're right. Thus saith the Lord. And he quoted. Not interesting, he didn't tell, sorry about that, Ananias. He just said, oh, here's Scripture. I'm getting in line with the Scripture. But means a total change of direction. Everything's going this way, but it's one of our loving coordinating conjunctions. Er, turns it, goes the other way. It's going this way. Things aren't going too good. He's already getting slapped around. But all of a sudden, Paul perceived. I like that. Because to, to look at earnestly just means that he stood in earnesty and he just looked at these guys and addressed them. But now he's looking with perception. And perception is being divinely uh, inspired to him, if you will. God is showing him something he didn't see earlier. And what was it he perceived? That one part was Sadducees and the others Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Here's why I'm here. So he was a Pharisee, and his dad was a Pharisee. By the way, Josephus, and you probably, Flavius Josephus, you know that guy? We probably all read him before we go to bed at night. Flavius Josephus tells us that there were at least 6,000 Pharisees during the time of Jesus. Funny how we think of Pharisees, you know, like a couple dozen of them floating around. There were 6,000 of these guys around. And he says, and my, I was a Pharisee, and my father was a Pharisee. And I'm being called in judgment because of the hope of the resurrection. And when he had said this, a dissension arose. Interesting, you see that word arose will appear four times in just a couple verses. So all of a sudden things are escalating. And all of a sudden dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For, means because of, Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angels and no spirit. That's why they were sad, you see. Right? You know that. 
Boy, that's funny. A little, I heard a delayed reaction. Over <laughs> they believe in no resurrection. They do not believe in spirits. They do not believe in angels. However, Scripture says the Pharisees confess both. By the way, remember we've been learning our word confess. Confess doesn't mean to admit. We, we make it say that. But confess means to say the same thing. So whatever God says, we confess it. We say the same thing about it. Whatever God says about our sin, we say the same thing about our sin. When, before we're saved, God says we're a sinner, we say the same thing. Yes, I'm a sinner. Now that we're saved in Christ, when God says I'm holy in Christ, we say the same thing, I'm holy in Christ. Right? So here, when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to the angel of the Spirit, God says there is a resurrection. God said there are angels, and God says there are demons. And you know what the Pharisees say? They confess it. They say the same thing. I say the same thing. Yes, you say there are, Lord. I say there are too. The Sadducee guys, they say, no, there's not. So there was a dissension. Then there rose a loud outcry. And notice, the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and they protested, saying, I love this, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension. You see where this is going? It's like, yeah. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them. I love this. Commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. This is brilliant. Did you see what happened here? I mean, it's a kingdom divided against itself. Cannot stand. And here, they, these two guys, these groups, these sects, these Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, they start fighting. And first they were there to fight against Paul, and now they're fighting for Paul. He's on our team. And he goes, no, he's not. He's on our team over here. And he's like, no, well, he's with us. He goes, no, he's not. And they're literally pulling him to pieces. Because the Pharisee goes, there's no evil in this guy. He's absolutely innocent. And the others go, no, there is evil because he believes those things. I don't know. I think it's funny. <laughs> See, I knew you did too. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. You see, we look at the drama of the event. We look at what's taking place and we get caught up in the narrative. And sometimes we forget why Paul's even there. We forget what the trial's all about. That's why I call this message, or my message, uh, grace on trial. Because that's what the trial's about. Because remember when Paul came, his message is a gospel of grace. If you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast about it. Right? He's preaching salvation by grace. By the way, that's in the book of Ephesians. Remember it was the Ephesians that came down, the non-believers came down and accused Paul. He was preaching a doctrine of grace. Salvation that is freely given, freely provided for, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Right? Jesus paid it all. And grace says, He paid it all. Tim, if you will believe that, you can be saved. He will take your sin and say, listen, that's been totally forgiven. And He will give you His righteousness. Amen? And say, man, we are righteous in Christ. 
Say that. I am righteous in Christ. How righteous is Christ? Very righteous? How about holy righteous? Say, I am holy. I am holy in Christ. That's hard for me to say sometimes. I can say it here, but to hear myself say it, I say, wow, I'm holy in Christ, and yet I know my life. I know my struggles. I know how I would respond if two soldiers just slapped me. Right hand of fellowship, right? Bam. That's grace. And he was accused. He came. He said, man, everyone thinks you're against the law. So Paul, I want you to do this and go get your hair cut with these other guys and go through this vow. And it was his message of grace that put him on trial here. And, and grace is being confronted now with different entities. And the first entity, by the way, ten verses, five deal with an incident, and five deal with the incitement. And in these ten verses, we see grace on trial. And grace, first of all, is in conflict to hypocrisy. That's the first five verses we see. We see hypocrisy in, its, in all its non-glory, if you will. Paul said, I have lived in good conscience before God all these days. And isn't it funny, it was the high priest who judged him and said, no, you haven't. Essentially is what he said. Slap him for saying such a thing. You did not live in good conscience before God. And so they slapped him. Now before we consider Paul's reaction, when he calls him a whitewashed wall, this was the first www.wall. He said, Duh. I don't know, I feel a rare form. Consider the phrase. What did he say? I'm in good conscience. I'm preaching grace, but I have good conscience before God. Conscience, con-science. It means with knowledge. Your conscience. Conscience means with knowledge. What knowledge? Romans 2.15 tells us what knowledge. Speaking to the Gentiles, he says the Gentiles who show the work of the what? Law. Written in their hearts. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews he's referring to. Their conscience with knowledge also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Our conscience either accuses us or excuses us. It either commends or it condemns. Conscience. He says, here are these unbelieving Gentiles. They don't even have the Mosaic Law. And yet, their conscience bears witness to them. And it discerns between what is right and what is wrong. Because it's based on the Word of God. With knowledge of what? With knowledge of the Word of God written on every man and woman's heart. That is a cool part about witnessing. Oh yeah, the Lord's already got His law written on their heart. And you speak to that. You speak to the heart. You don't try to prove there's a God. You don't try to go through all the, you know, argumentative, apologetics, you know, jousting. That's fine in its place. But the bottom line is that go right to the heart of the source. You go right to the heart. He said, I was in good conscience. The conscience, as I define it, I call it a divine implant. 
If you do much reading on transhumanism, anyone do much reading on that besides me? Transhumanism? Transhuman. Transhuman. Wow. Man, they're writing about it in Forbes. I read an article yesterday in Forbes magazine, transhumanism. I've been writing, you know, Elon Musk is big, profounder, you know, big uh, creator trying to go to transhumanism. Transhumanism is when they're trying to take humans beyond their human capacity by doing uh, implants, brain implants, connecting you to the cloud. That's transhumanism. God bless you. Read on it. It's fun to read. It's like, wow, you guys crazy? I bet you didn't know that the first robot became, first a citizen robot, became a citizen in Saudi Arabia. God bless you. You read that too? You know? Yeah, so a, a robot is now a citizen of Saudi Arabia. And so, uh, it's kind of wild, like, really? It's a female named Sophia. It means wisdom. Uh, yeah, that's, boy, some of the things coming out of her mouth are kind of crazy. But she's an AI, and that's another thing. Don't get me going. You'll say, I need to follow your reading list. Yeah, it's kind of weird. But, uh, amen. I'm not talking about transhumanism when I talk about um, divine implant. But your conscience is a divine implant that God has plugged into every man, every woman, every child ever born, has been given a conscience, the law of God written on their heart. And that divine implant, is I call it a spiritual mechanism. It is what discerns between what is morally good and what is morally bad. Everyone has that conscience. Some consciences are seared, but they are born with that conscience. It prompts us to do good, and it, it prompts us to shun bad. The point that we're making here is that Paul saying, with conscience, with knowledge of the law of God written on my heart, I have lived before him as I've preached this gospel of grace. You see, here's the thing, friends. Grace is not in conflict with the law of God. Grace is in cooperation with the law of God. It's not in conflict. That's what a lot of people think. They think somehow grace and, and the law of God are in conflict. They're not in conflict. They're in cooperation. They work in conjunction with each other. The law of God diagnoses the problem. Tim, you got a sin problem. Here's what the law of God says. But the law of God cannot fix my problem. He sends me over to Dr. Grace, who then fixes my problem. Right? Dr. Law can't fix it. He can only diagnose it. And his diagnosis is always right. Tim, you got a heart problem. I said, well, Dr. Law fix it. I can't fix it. But I got a colleague that can. He takes me over to Dr. Grace. And Dr. Grace opens me up. <laughs> and he moves that heart condition. That stony heart is vile and dark. And he gives me a new heart, the heart of Christ. And he sews me back up. Because of nothing I've done. You may go to, there's an old sermon actually on that. But Dr. Grace, Dr. Law, Dr. Religion, Dr. Be Good, and his brother, Dr. Do Good. They go to all these ones trying to fix that problem. The law and grace are not in conflict. They're in cooperation. The law diagnoses the problem. Grace fixes the problem. Are you with me on this? And so here when we look at the conflict, the conflict is not grace and the law. The conflict is hypocrisy and the law. You see, they were judging him at the same time they're trying to defend the law. They were breaking the law. And the high priest is slapping him contrary to the law. 
and yet he's supposed to be enforcing the law. By the way, did you notice as soon as Paul realized that his actions, his words and actions here were wrong and weren't in line with the Word of God, as soon as he realized this is a high priest, what did he do? He didn't justify himself and say, well, I'm under grace. He goes, no, he says, you know what? I bring myself back in alignment to the Word of God. If he's a high priest, the Word of God says this, and you know what? I'm on it. I'm with it. I'm good with it. You see, the problem is, when it comes to hypocrisy, it's hypocrisy that, that says, Oh, man, you guys are grace lovers. You guys, you guys just think you've got a license to sin. You can do what you want. You're under grace. Blah, blah, blah. And while they're judging others, they themselves are breaking the law. Right? Sin does not say there is not a sin, or excuse me, grace does not say there is not a sin problem. Grace recognizes a sin problem. But grace says, here's a solution to your sin problem. That's the difference. Law says there's a sin problem, but doesn't know the solution. The law says, grace is the solution. You see, friends, if you're going to have a grace walk, grace walk does not ignore sin. A grace walk does not say, well, I never have a problem. Did Paul, did Paul step out of line? He did here. Even if it was his attitude. Oh, you whitewash wall, you. From the Adam, right? I mean, I'm like, wow, he let him off easy. As soon as he said, wow, you know, right? Yeah, you know what? This is what the Word says. I'm gonna, and he stopped reviling the high priest. You see, friends, the amazing part of it with grace is grace is pure, and grace is holy, and grace is righteous, and it works through people that struggle. <laughs> That people are still living in the flesh, which is unredeemed, right? You realize that? You realize this? I know you might think, this is not the glorified body. <laughs> it's not. Not yet. Not yet. You, I don't, you say, really? Stand up, Glenn. You want to see a glorified body? Stand up. No. <laughs> the flesh is yet to be redeemed. The body or the spirit and the soul are redeemed. The flesh is yet to be redeemed. But yet grace is no less grace because it works through an unredeemed flesh. We need to get back in line with grace. We need to keep walking in grace. And when we act ways we shouldn't, when we shake our fists at someone, when we have the crummy attitude, we've got to say, you know what? All right, you know, I've got to get back in line with the Word of God. Interesting his statement, however, whitewashed walls. Say that three times fast. It's only the second time in the Bible it's used in the New Testament. Jesus used it the first time. By the way, Jesus did it without attitude. <laughs> Paul probably had a little bit of an attitude, right? Jesus said, as you can see here, Matthew 23, verse 27, Woe to you. Man, when the God of the universe says woe to you, they should have said, whoa, why? You scribes and Pharisees, Remember who stood up in the court? The scribes of the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Means to wear the mask. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs or sepulchers. The, the, when Paul said walls, there was the rich people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had their own separate tombs, their own separate um, sepulchers. Remember when Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph? It was a rich man's tomb. The rich ones had walls that you could walk in through the door into their sepulcher. And they would whitewash the door and the walls and everything. Especially during the feast. And remember right now it's the Feast of Pentecost going on. 
And he says, you whitewash tombs which indeed appear beautiful. You look good on the outside. But inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. It's quite an accusation to say to the Pharisees. He said, they, you whitewash your tombs. Whitewash. It was a lime, kind of like we think of gypsum. It was a, a limestone paint plaster that they would use. And they would put it on the walls and make it look pretty. And it was there also as a warning sign. Not to get defiled. Don't. Be careful. There's a sepulcher here. You're coming to the Feast of Pentecost. Don't step on this grave. Be careful. Don't touch this wall. They, they said, oh man, I can't be touching this. I am here to worship God for this feast. He says, you're like that tomb. You look really good on the outside, but inside there's a problem. That's called hypocrisy. Jesus called it hypocrisy. These guys, Paul calls them out for their hypocrisy. Because they, they played the hypocrite. The hypocrite covers and conceals sin. You read Leviticus 14, 15, 16 on leprosy. The mold that would be on their walls. And the Lord says to them, don't paint over it. Don't plaster over it. He says, if you've got leprosy on the wall, it's got to be cleansed before it gets painted. You've got to wash that mold off. But what they would do, they just wash over it. And the, and the mold on the other side of it, guess what it did? It just worked its way out. And before you know it, it's out again. And so they put another coat on. You see, religion, hypocrisy, those who claim they're living by the law, yet breaking the law, as our case here. Religion always candy coats the outside. Always puts another new paint job on. Always just plasters over the mold, but the mold's still there. It's always a cover-up. You see, hypocrisy conceals sin with religion. It conceals it with trying to be good and do good. And, and, and the more sin and struggles they have inside, the more they try to put on the, the appearance on the outside that all is well. May even seem and may even look pious like these guys. But friends, the problem is not the white paint. The problem is that the corruption, the mold, and the sin is still there. It's just not being dealt with. That's what the Lord said. That's the problem with these guys. Slapping Paul around and accusing him because he was preaching grace. And yet the problem wasn't on Paul's side. It was on the hypocrite's side. He just covered it up. And I know that they were lost. But you know what? As saved people, we do the same thing. And we cover it up. And there, there might be sin in our life. And we cover it up. We, we paint it with grace. We go, oh, look, you know, I'm under grace, man. Listen, we are under grace. But grace does not ignore sin. Grace recognizes sin. But grace shows us a solution to it. Amen? Grace says, listen, you are in Christ. Now live holy as I'm holy. I made a new you. He, Grace says, hey, yeah, this is an issue. you got to deal with it. Grace says, here's the verse, and i got to get in line with it. You follow me? There's a difference here. But oftentimes it's the religious hypocrites that are bad-mouthing grace. They say, oh, you guys just think it's a license to sin. Because why? Because sometimes we whitewash our lives and say, oh yeah, I'm good here, but we have an issue inside we're not dealing with. Is there something inside today you say, you know what? I need to deal with this. How do I deal with it? I need to remember who I am in Christ. I need to thank Jesus for dying on the cross for that sin. I need to give this back to the Lord. You say, Tim, aren't, aren't you supposed to ask forgiveness? No. There's Tim's heresy right there. 
Because when I got saved, I asked God to forgive me. And God says, I will cleanse you from how much? All unrighteousness. So when I confess, I don't ask Him to cleanse me again of unrighteousness. I confess, I say, thank you, I have been cleansed from unrighteousness. Thank you that I have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. I say the same thing. What a slap in God's face when I don't live by faith. Faith says, God, you said this, and by faith I believe that you cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And my faith says, yes, Lord, Jesus' blood was sufficient, and I am forever clean in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you some people, I believe that with all my heart. I believe I am forever clean in Jesus Christ. And that He washed away all sin, all unrighteousness. I believe that in my life. Does that say there's no sin and unrighteousness? No, that's still there. And grace always shows it to me. And then I confess the same thing. Thank you, Jesus, that this sin that I didn't even know was coming. Or maybe I knew and I did it anyways. Thank you that that's been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace isn't a license to sin. Since when have we ever needed a license? Right? We've been sinning without a license all this time. Grace confesses the same thing. Wow. Didn't you just say you were holy in Christ? Didn't you? Well, are you or aren't you? Damn. Wow. And I have to say the same thing. Grace is not in conflict to the law. Grace is in cooperation. And by the way, I notice that grace confronts legalism and humanism. You see, that's what we see with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the religious arm and the Sadducees were the secular arm of the council. Pharisee means separated ones. They were the legalists. Now, we agree with a lot of the Pharisees' positions. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in a coming Messiah. Do we believe that? Yes. But their issue was a pride of good works and self-righteousness. And so they separated themselves with their washings and their fasting and their tithing and their prayers and their giving, And they did all these things. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Remember that? Separation. It means separated ones. I ministered in, was part of, grew up in my, not my B.C. life. B.C. I was just pagan. But since I've been saved, I've been in groups of people that pride themselves on their separatist position. Who's ever heard of first, second, third degree separation? Anyone, anyone ever grown some first, second, third degree separation? Yeah, a couple of us. Yikes. That's why I'm still recovering. <laughs> first degree separation is like this. Okay, this is Mr. Stan. Oh, Mr. Stan, oh boy, he's a dirty rotten sinner. Oh man, I'm going to separate from this Mr. Stan because he's a sinful person. That's first degree separation. Second degree separation said, oh hey, oh, you're his friend? Oh, I'm not going to, I now separate from you because you're friends of this bad sinner over here. And then I go over here to Mr. Piano and I find out, oh, Mr. Mr. Piano, you're friends of this one, his friends of that one, and that's third degree separation. You say, that's crazy. I know, I lived there for I don't know how long couple decades. And they would all gather together and say, Woo, we're separated ones. And they'd have, they'd literally, they'd have a guy a whole tailgate. You are who you associate with. And, and the whole issue was on separation. 
and separating at first level and a second level and a third level. And, and they pride themselves, just like the Pharisees, they pride themselves how separated from the sinners we are. And we become your own little group. Now you may not have heard first, second, third degree separation. And you may not care. Amen? I could care less about them now. But the fact of the matter is, we still get this attitude towards people. Ooh, they got issues. And we just, now, I, I understand you lie with dogs, you get up with fleas. I know all that stuff. And I know that bad company corrupts good morals, the Bible says. Right? I understand that. But my point is that attitude that somehow we're better than they are. Somehow we have reached another plane. Let me tell you something. I've said it before, and I really mean it. I may know better, but I'm no better. Just because I know better doesn't mean that I'm any better. So I may know better, but I'm no better. Except for the grace of God, there goes me. Right? And there goes you. The Pharisees, they were the judgmental ones. They were judgmental towards everyone for failing to keep the law like they keep the law. And the Sadducees, well, they were the humanists. The humanists, they denied the resurrection. They denied the immortality of your soul. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the existence of any spirit being. They denied and discounted the supernatural. In other words, there was always a reason, a, a reasonable explanation for a supernatural event. Hey, so-and-so just got healed. We were praying for him and they got healed. Well, it's probably their medicine kicking in. You know what I mean? A supernatural, God will do something miraculous and they always have a reason why. You know, God parted the Red Sea. Well, I think it was more up and around the swampy area of the Red Sea. And, you know, the tide was just receding. I've, I've heard all these, like, what? Let me tell you, I believe God parted the Red Sea. Not the red puddle. The Red Sea. And when they crossed the Jordan at flood stage, God used an earthquake and He parted the Jordan River. And I believe that earthquake was miraculous to carry out what took place. And I believe when the dead was raised from the dead, I consider that a miracle. Because it's beyond the natural. Amen? The Sadducees would say, well, I think He just swooned. He just appeared dead. He was mostly dead. Right? And now in Mad Max, he was mostly dead. And they always got a reason for everything. Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees in Matthew 16 and verse 6, he said this, Then Jesus said to them, the disciples, Take heed. You know what take heed means? Put the brakes on. It's like you're coming up to a light and it goes orange. It's about to go red. You take heed and you slow down. I know, you go, oh, I thought you were supposed to step on the gas. You take heed. You say, oh, i got to do something here. Take heed, he says, and beware of what? The leaven. He doesn't put out any gross sin out here. He said, watch out for the leaven. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees. Leaven is, a.k.a. yeast. It was the yeast of their problems. The yeast. He's like, this little thing. Watch out for the Pharisees' yeast. Really? Not kosher yeast? Watch out for the Sadducees' yeast. Really? 
Well, I'm not going to go over there and make some bread. I'm not going to buy from their store. What's he talking about? Yeast is this little substance that makes a whole transformation to the dough. It actually creates a fermentation process, which is decaying, and it makes the dough rise, right? He says, but that little yeast will transform what I'm teaching you. It'll transform grace. If you try to go through life on a grace walk, and you inject just a little bit of yeast in the Pharisees, which is legalism, into that, and you start becoming judgmental and judging others by their standard, or judging yourself. Scripture says, for those that judge themselves by themselves and judge themselves among themselves. They compare themselves to others. And, and the legalism tells them, legalism just doesn't say, I'm better than the others. Legalism also goes in the other side of the spectrum and says, you're not as good as the others. It's a measuring thing. He says, watch out for the measurement issue. When you measure yourself and you look around and say, man, everyone else got their act together in this church, but I don't. I got news for you. None of us have our act fully together. All of us have issues we struggle with. All of us have attitudes we deal with. All of us have actions we wish we didn't do. All of us have driven on I-65 before. Right? Now you know what I mean. And yet, somehow we think everyone else has it together but us. He says, be careful of that little leaven, that little yeast. It'll transform your grace understanding into something that it's not. And watch out for not only the legalist, but the humanist side. And the humanist side always wants an explanation for the supernatural. And they see God supernaturally working, oh, well, they're faking. You ever see someone overwhelmed by the Spirit, and, and maybe they're, they're praying in tongues or something, and you're like, oh, I don't believe it. That's not real. They're just running their mouth. They're just pulling the old Fred Flintstone yabba-dabba-doo thing going on, right? I used to be that way. I discounted that supernatural. And I say, well, that's not good. Or I see someone gets healed. I say, well, maybe their medicine's kicking in. Well, or someone said, I had this dream last night. Ah, pizza and ice cream don't mix. <laughs> We're always discounting the supernatural. Instead, you know, instead we need to go back and say, wait a minute. My God works beyond the natural. Hence, supernatural. He works beyond the natural. And He works in ways that don't come natural. And I believe in a God who can still speak to people in dreams and in visions. You look at some of the Muslim world that have been saved and, and God has spoke to them initially through that. And then they came and they hear the gospel they give their life to Jesus. What, are you going to discount that? And you say, well, that's not legal. They really can't do that. They're doing it. God's doing it. God's speaking to me. He's pulling them out of this, this lifelong tradition and belief system. And not every, and He deals with everyone differently. Remember, there are never two healing incidents in the Scripture that are exactly the same. They're all different. Every one of them. Well, I don't believe someone can just spit in the mud, rub it in their eyes, and they're healed. That's probably why you're not healed. But that's what Jesus did, didn't He? Spit in the mud, rub their eyes. I don't know. If I was the blind guy, and I heard someone go, ah. I'd be like, 
just do what I think he did? <laughs> Seriously. Is this on my eyes? Is this really on my eyes? And then when he said, go wash the pool of Siloam, I go, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I, he got down there fine. And you go, that's not natural. No, it really isn't. <laughs> You're right. It's not natural. But yet that guy believed that Jesus could heal his blindness. And he let Jesus do it the way he wanted to do it. Amen? When it comes to the natural and the supernatural, listen, let God be God. And let God do things the way God wants to do things. Right? And just because it doesn't fit in our theological grid, don't discount it. You say, wait a minute, I'm not going to fall into the 11 of the, the Sadducees or 11 of the Pharisees. I'm going to say, you know what? I may not understand it, but God, you be God, and to God be the glory. You be God. And you know what? You might find your faith starting to expand. And say, huh, it's amazing what I can believe God for nowadays. It's amazing. I mean, it's like, yeah, I can believe God. Oh, you got this issue? Yeah, yeah, God can. You know what? I'm so crazy as to believe that God can still heal an addicted person like that. I still believe that. I'm hearing all over. You've got to go through this program, that program. Take 12 steps and then 13 just for good luck. I'm like, what? I believe that God can instantaneously. Take away a desire of the body as well as the soul. I believe that with all my heart. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a struggle, but I'll tell you what. I know in my own life there's issues. Like, Lord, instantly that desire was gone. I struggled for years with those things. Years with it. He just, right then. And he can still do it today. So be it unto you according to your faith. Know what Jesus said? Just believe him. So, what's really on trial here is not Paul. Got slapped around a little bit. What really on trial here is grace. That's why he was pulled in the first place. And grace cannot stand up against hypocrisy. Because it's always in conflict with hypocrisy. And legalism and humanism are no match for God's grace. Because when it's all said and done, they're all gone. And grace is still standing. So, look at our lives and say, is there something in my life I'm just coding over? I just think that, I just try to ignore and I say, well, I'm under grace. Or is there something in my life I said, you know what, I need to get in line with the Word of God. As I walk in grace, I want to be in line with it. Help me, Lord, not to just cover it up. Help me to deal with it. And in that grace walk, there's a little judgmental attitude getting in there that we need to deal with. Is there been a struggle with the human side and by the way, I think the ones that, the greatest struggle are those who work in the medical field. Bless your hearts when you believe in a God that heals. Bless your Because you know the medical industry. And you think, wow, there's a reason for this, that, and the other thing. Listen. Man is just practicing medicine. God knows it. Right? He knows it. He knows how to do the work. But what is it? Where are you at in your heart and life? Are you struggling with trying to explain everything away? Or are you starting to learn to embrace it and say, Lord, <laughs> you're awesome. You are God, and I am not. And that's awesome. Father, thank you for your grace. Wow. 
Sometimes we get out of step like Paul did here. But we got to get back in it. Thank you, Jesus, for working in us. And there may be some here that they, maybe they had a bad diagnosis. Maybe there's things in their body that, that just need your touch. Maybe there's something that's got their claws into somebody. They just need deliverance and they're walking that freedom that grace has provided. Father, I pray for deliverance. I pray for healing. I pray for help. I pray for your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, to do the supernatural in our lives today. Even in our invitation, Lord, if there's even one that's not saved yet, I pray for their salvation. I pray that today would be the day they gave their life to Jesus. Do your mighty work, I ask, in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Stand with me as we sing. The worship team's here. Ministry team, would you come? People are here to pray for you. Maybe you said, you know, I just need to, God's dealing with me. It had nothing to do with the sermon, but He's dealing with me on this issue. That's good. Let us pray with you. Let us pray. People are here to pray with you. You come. You have a need today. Today is the day. Today is the day to deal. We're only going to take a couple minutes. So we're not going to be here long. Not 53 stanzas. A few minutes. You come.